Hey, I need some volunteers as we dive into the, the lesson today. Volunteers who can sing like a line from a song. Can I just get a show of hands? Anybody willing to sing a line from a song? All right. What's the song? Good question. Uh, we'll, we'll get to that. Nobody else? All right. Emily will do it. Where is, it, where is Natalie? Where's Jillian? Okay. All right. All right. All right, Casey, come on down. Um, I'm going to need some help with some of these. Let me review what we talked about last week. We introduced a series called Jesus and Sex. Let this also be the warning that if you have children up here, this is not a good week for that. Maybe bring them down to Oikos Kids. Really, this is not a good month for that because we're in a three-part series, Jesus and Sex. Part one was on sexual desire. Part two is today. It's on marriage. And part three next week will be on singleness. Really excited to talk to Singles in particular. You may be wondering, why talk about marriage? Why talk about singles? And about, about half, just over half of our church are single. If you include children, which I do. Children are people too, you know. Let's advocate for children. But if I did a show of hands for, let's, let's do it real quick. Who's single in the room? Unmarried, unmarried. Okay, now, if you have somebody single in your home, raise a hand. Keep, keep them up. If you have someone single in your home, raise a hand. And now if you have two or more people single in your, hand, or in your home, raise two hands, okay? Now if you have like a grandchild or someone that you love dearly who's single, go ahead and raise it. The point is that this affects everybody. And so we need, to, we need a conversation around sex and around marriage and around singleness because this is everybody here. So last week I, I started this. Jesus and sex, part one was on sexual desire, and I said, based on Matthew 5, 27, where Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, you've heard it said. Most of us actually haven't heard it said from mom or dad, except for, what do you call it when your parents have a conversation around sex? The talk, singular. It may have happened one time where somebody talked to you about sex in a meaningful way at home, and so then you say, well, okay, well, church was talking about it. And that's actually not the case either. Most churches aren't talking about sex, at least not very often. And the ones that are are trying to do it at the coffee shop rather than on the stage. And I, I totally get that. I much prefer to have these conversations around the coffee shop table. Uh, there can be a lot of trust built. There can be a lot of safety. But at some point, if you're not hearing it from home and you're not hearing it from church, what ends up happening is that instead of being transformed by the renewing of your mind, we continue to be conformed by the messages of our culture. The messages of our culture are actually highly conflicting. So last week I introduced a two by two, I made a few tweaks to this graph. The, the left to right axis now says, it's, it's really the question of like, what is sex to me? What is sex to me? What is my sexual desire? And it's a spectrum from animal to divine. And then the up and down is, what is my sex partner to me? What is my sex partner? And that's a soulmate down to a, like a convenience. All right, so let's fill this in, and this is where I need your help. I want you to come up with songs that fit each of these quadrants, ba like popular songs. Not You don't invent the You're not writing these songs. You're just telling me popular American songs, okay? And then I've got one that I'll, I'll ask somebody to sing, okay? So the first view that we saw last week I called the platonic view, and it's really... Uh, it's this overlap that sex is animal and that, that there's a soulmate. The other is the soulmate. Okay? 
So it's animal, sex is flesh. We, we said this is the view of ancient Plato, but this is also the view of many Roman Catholic people, that if you're really going to be holy, you have to take vows against sex. Your priest and your nuns are unmarried, and they cannot have sex. Why? Because sex is flesh. We need something higher. And so you can think of like a platonic friendship. Think of songs about platonic friendship. Okay? Platonic friendship, you're not trying to have sex with the other person. But your souls are united in a special way. You love the good and the beautiful and the true together. Deep intimacy, but non-sexual. What do you think? Songs. Why can't we be friends? Yeah, that's good. You've got a friend in me. Can anybody sing, you've got a friend in me? It's not sexual. That's the whole point. This is Buzz and Woody, people, you know? Somebody, just sing a line from You've Got a Friend. Oh, yeah, there it is. Let me, let me share a few lyrics from this song. This will, this will be surprising. Some other folks might be a little bit smarter than I am, bigger and stronger too, maybe. But none of them will ever love you the way I do. It's me and you, boy. And as the years go by, our friendship will never die. You're going to see it's our destiny. You've got a friend in me. It's a love song, non-sexual. And some people may want to make everything sexual, but that's actually the opposite of a platonic view of sex. This is a, a, a boy's love for another. It's Woody and, and Buzz, an eternal destiny of souls united in love. That's, that's one view of sex. All right, second view of sex is the overlap of animal sexual desire. But instead of being soulmates, this was, is really about convenience. I call this the casual view of sex. This is the college hookup where it's, it's just we happen to be in the same place wanting some of the same things. You're hungry, eat something. You're thirsty, drink something. You're aroused, go have some fun with somebody. It's the, can you think of any songs that have this more casual view of sex? Okay, Animal, yeah, perfect, it's in the name. Okay, yes. Let's not sing that one. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually using that one for one coming up, so hold out on that one. The song I came up with was, What's Love Got to Do With It? Can anybody sing a line from What's Love Got to Do With It? Casey, where are you at? Can you do it? Yeah, yeah, here's some lyrics from What's Love Got to Do With It? It's physical. It's left side of our spectrum, only logical. You must try to ignore that it means more than that. What's love but a second-hand emotion? What's love got to do with it? Who needs a heart when a heart can be broken? Do you see how casual it is? I actually don't want love to be part of this. This is just physical. All right, next view is what I'm calling the romantic view. Now, the romantic view agrees with the platonic view in that it's about soulmates and about people being united together, but instead of agreeing with the animal view, this says it has a divine view. In order to really be me, I have to be sexually fulfilled. This is like a spiritual fulfillment that's happening through sex. 
Kari, this is where I use Locked Out of Heaven by Bruno Mars. Can you think of any other romantic songs? The one, okay. But by the way, almost any song about love or sex is a romantic song today. This is the dominant view of our culture when it comes to sex. Can you think of any others? All right, who can give me a line from Locked Out of Heaven? Out. Jenna, was that you? I can't hardly see over there. Nobody can sing a line from Locked Out of Heaven. Okay, let me just give you some lyrics. Uh, Locked Out of Heaven. Here, never had much faith in love or miracles. Never want to put my heart on the line, but swimming in your water is something spiritual. I'm born again every time I spend the night because your sex takes me to paradise. Do you hear all the religious themes of spiritual, born again? The whole song is about using Christian language to describe a sexual encounter. Why? Because, because sex is divine here. It, it's actually a taste of something far more. All right, there, a couple more. All right, we're just reviewing here. The fourth view that you'll see echoes of in our culture, I'm calling the traditional view. Traditional view. Some people are taking pictures. There's going to be one more, so you might as well just wait till the next one. Traditional, it says that the relationship between us can be a matter of convenience, like an arranged marriage. It's, it's not soulmates. My parents knew your parents, and they set up a dowry, and here we are. It's, it can be a marriage of convenience, where there's something political happening. But at the same time, there's also something divine happening. That it, It's like Psalm 128. If you want to see the blessing of God, then you're going to need a man to get a wife and a wife to give birth, especially to have sons, because sex is really about legacy. Sex is about family. And so, yes, it's all about identity, but it's not about sexual identity. Here, it's about family identity. It's traditional. Do you have any songs? This week, I asked ChatGBT to help me out with this. <laughs> And I said, I don't know any ChatGPT. Can you help me find a traditional culture song? And it said, well, this one from a Bollywood film might have to do with it. I was like, okay, let me check that out. It turns out it was about a man falling in love with another woman who was in arranged engagement. I was like, that's the opposite of what I'm looking for, chat. And besides, that's Bollywood. Do you have any American versions of this? And, and it said, yeah, Speak Now by Taylor Swift. And I'm, I'm not a big Swifty. This surprises you. Can I just give a few lyrics from Speak Now? Can anybody sing a line from that? Jillian, that's where I wanted Jillian here. Ashley, you got it? Swifty? You don't know? Okay. I'm not the kind of girl. I'm not going to do it. I'm trying. <laughs> I'm not the kind of girl who should be rudely barging in on a white veil occasion, but you are not the kind of boy who should be marrying the wrong girl, so don't say yes, run away now. I'm like, again, chat GPT, that's the opposite of what I'm, you see, our culture can't hardly find a romantic view, I mean a traditional view. Instead, it's about destroying the traditional view in favor of the romantic. Every love song I can find, maybe you can think of one this week, but I did think of one song that really captures a traditional view. But the thing is, this song isn't written from the perspective of a man and a woman. 
it's written from the perspective of a child of divorce. The great philosophers Blink-182. <laughs> Their song, Stay Together for the Kids. Their anger hurts my ears. Been in running strong for seven years. Rather than fix the problems, they never solve them. It makes no sense at all. I see them every day. We get along, so why can't they? If this is what he wants and it's what she wants, then why is there so much pain? You see, the child in the story is wanting somebody to just stay together for the kids, but instead it doesn't happen. One more view that we talked about last week. This is actually the Christian view, the biblical view, that it rejects the extremes of all four of these and the abuses that come there, but it still holds together the desires. It has a way of restraining the worst parts and releasing the best parts all at once. And so I located it right in, in the center, and I call this the covenant view. And the covenant is after faithfulness. That's, that's covenant language. It's about being faithful to a covenant. It's about partnership and making promises to each other. And in a covenant view, it actually has every one of these desires in some capacity. So it has pieces of friendship, and it has pieces of family. It has pieces of fun, and it has pieces of fulfillment. And scripture, in Genesis 1 and 2, is affirming all of these. You, you see language like, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. It's a naked man speaking to a naked woman, and this is the first thing that anyone in scripture ever says. It's this command of be fruitful and multiply. Yes, family is affirmed. It's, it's this, so a man shall leave his father and mother, and they shall be united and become one flesh. The Song of Solomon is an entire book that explores kind of the dimensions of all of these four, but it's held together within a covenant. So the Christian view of sex, I said last week, isn't a small view. It's not a low view. It's actually an extremely high view that that is actually higher than all of the others because it holds together every piece. It restrains and releases in really remarkable ways. Can you think of any songs that come from a covenant view, of a faithfulness view? I got one for you. Forever and Ever, Amen by Randy Travis. Okay. Can anybody sing a line from it? Not the whole song. We could also, I could sing along with that. Thank you. That was awesome. You've even got the voice for it, man. As long as old men sit and talk about the weather, as long as old women sit and talk about old men, if you wonder how long I'll be faithful, well, just listen to how this song ends. I'm going to love you forever and ever, forever and ever. Amen. Love that song. I have this vivid memory of sitting in the backseat of my grandparents' car, and that song came on the radio and my grandma was in breast cancer treatments at the time. She'd lost all her hair. And so it was just this little moment that I was having in the back seat as I was thinking about my grandparents. It's a covenant view, though, where it says, like, no matter what happens, we're in this together. But something has happened that, that this covenant view is diminishing in prominence and in desirability. And the covenant view is actually interpreted by a lot of people to be restrictive and backward and really just it, it's against happiness it's against liberation and so how do we get here to where we are today where instead of a covenant view being the dominant view instead we see these elements of casual especially if you're dating and you're on apps like tinder but we mostly see this romantic view 
where it's like, how did, how did we get here? And generationally, there is a clear answer to this question. And this isn't like a Christian interpretation of what happened. This is just generally agreed upon that in our culture, there's something that happened called the sexual revolution. Can we talk for just a few minutes about the sexual revolution? This is Mary Eberstadt in her book, Adam and Eve After the Pill. She's just describing what it is. She says, it is the destigmatization and demystification of non-marital sex and the reduction of sexual relations in general to a kind of hygienic recreation in which anything goes so long as those involved are consenting adults. So there's this American sexual revolution that starts happening where this sexual counterculture arises in the 1950s and it's really pushed forward in legal ways, in technological ways, and in cultural ways. First thing that this does is it separates sex from marriage, and it really f puts forward promiscuity. In 1953, um, Playboy was founded with the first cover story, story being about Marilyn Monroe, and then in 1960, the first Playboy club opened. At the same time, this promiscuity of visual is meeting with promiscuity of novels. In 1959, uh, the court started basically saying that it's free speech. You, you have to be able to publish these unedited erotic novels. I, last week I talked about D.H. Lawrence and one of his books, Lady Chatterley's Lover, was actually re-released after a court case in 1959 and many more would be overturned in the 60s. In 1969, the first film depicting explicit sex acts was released. And this would, of course, just... So there's this shift that's happening where, where sex is being viewed literally and read, and, but it, it's culturally being viewed as something broader than marriage, and it's, it's beginning to be expanded to things like promiscuity. But then it also separated sex from procreation. There's this technological advance in 1960 where the FDA approves the first contraceptive um, pill that you would take, the pill. It's kind of like the talk. We know what we're talking about here. Uh, Mary Aberstadt, she writes her whole book really on this technological innovation. And she says that this, this technology is the most important. Um, man, I'm, I'm just losing where I'm at. No single event since Eve took the apple has been as consequential for relations between the sexes as the arrival of modern contraception. Now, for 12 years, this is only available to married people, and then in 1972, the courts make it legal for single people as well. In 1973, Roe v. Wade is passed, legalizing abortion. And so what happens, it's not just that sex is removed from marriage, it's that sex is removed from procreation. Sex becomes an act where there's not the consequences of life anymore, and if there are, you can take care of that too. And then sex is removed from really intimacy and fidelity and covenant. This is the rise of what's called no-fault divorce. In 1969, the first no-fault divorce bill was passed in the United States, and quickly, many of the other states adopted it. Now, if you think I'm just being political and like anti-progressive, just know that the first no-fault divorce bill was signed by Ronald Reagan, and it would be later Bill Clinton who signed the Defense of Marriage Act, ironically, and so it's, it's, this is not a political thing. And, but what happened from 1960 to 1980 is that the divorce rate in the United States doubled in just two decades. 
So then it separates sex from romance, and you see the rise of hookup culture, and of course this has exponentially grown with the technological advances of dating apps and, and other mechanisms. You used to ask, how many times do we need to go out before we have sex? And now the question is, how many times do we have sex before we go out? It separated sex from romance, but then it separated sex from a, f a male and female union. So the sexual revolution had a gay and bisexual lesbian um, piece of it, where it was expanding sex from even these restrictions. And so it climaxed in the 2015 Supreme Court ruling of Obergefell, which legalized same-sex marriage nationwide. And of course, the sexual revolution continues. The push is now to separate sex from gender altogether with the trans movement, and this, the push to separate sex from two persons, the polyamorous movement. And so there are these cultural, legal, and technological advances, so-called, all kind of building on some of Freud's ideas that, that we need sexual liberation in order to really find out who we are, that it's repression whenever you hold down your sexual desires, and it's oppression whenever somebody else is telling you what to do. And so family expectations, personal expectations, religious expectations, we need done with those. We need liberation. And we have never seen a revolution quite so effective as the sexual revolution in the last two generations. We just can't imagine a world on the other side. And just so you know, I am not advocating that we go back to the 1950s world. Instead, what I'm advocating for is that we, we look for something really underneath this. But really, I want to ask this question that John Mark Comer asked in his book, Live No Lies. He says the question nobody seems to be even asking, or is this making us better people? more loving people, even happier people, are we thriving in a way we weren't prior to liberation? I think this is a really, really good question. The standard celebratory rendition says that the sexual revolution has been a nearly unmitigated boon for all humanity. It has liberated women, freeing them from personal and professional opportunities they couldn't have enjoyed before. This is Mary Everstock. It's liberated men, too, from their former chains, many would argue, chiefly from the bondage of having to take responsibility for the women and, and the sex they had and the children that resulted. It's liberated men and women, so the narrative goes. But are men actually feeling the effects of this liberation? Men have been liberated from husbandhood and fatherhood, but instead of a more Flourishing fulfillment and happiness we see increasingly extended, prolonged adolescence. We see widespread pornography on a scale never before seen in a sharp rise in pornographic addiction. Liberated? That's how you want to describe the sexual experience of men today? When men are liberated, it not only does something to them, but it also does something to women and children. And so we should be asking, are, are women experiencing liberation? There's been this massive increase in freedom, sexually and otherwise, but there's massive declines in happiness that have gone along with it. There's this, what Mary Everstock calls an unexplained gap between the unprecedented freedoms enjoyed by today's women and their simultaneous increasing unhappiness as measured by social science. Women are not happier today. Many feminists now recognize that the liberation, so-called, continues to oppress women. Women disproportionately bear the burdens of the sexual revolution, still. What about young women? What to do about toxic you, 
this is about college women and hookup culture on campus, but now the hookup culture on campus has been extended to anywhere you can have a dating app. One sociologist, David Buss, a professor of psychology at the University of Texas at Austin, he says what ends up happening to young women is that there's so many thousands, what feels like millions of options when it comes to women, that they've been commodified. There's all these millions of potential mates out there. So one dimension of this, he says, is that the impact it has on men's psychology. When there's a surplus of women in the dating market, so to speak, or a perceived surplus of women, the whole mating system tends to shift towards short-term dating. Marriages become unstable, divorces increase, men don't have to commit, so they pursue a short-term mating strategy. Men are making that shift, and women are forced to go along with it in order to mate at all. You could say this hasn't liberated men. You could also say this hasn't liberated women. If we looked at the unborn, there's no way we could say this has liberated them with 64 million abortions since 1973. Has this liberated children and families? Brad Wilcox, he does a lot of work on marriage. He calls this the divorce revolution. It's kind of an after effect of the sexual revolution. And he says when men and women are liberated from their responsibilities like marriage, it's the children who suffer. There's this view, he called it the traditional view or institutional view, that saw marriage and divorce. At one point, it saw that divorce could leave an indelible emotional scar on children. He says, but we've lost that view after the sexual revolution. Now he calls it the new soulmate model of marriage, where divorce could be an opportunity for growth, not only for adults, but for their offspring. He says, 30 years later, the myth of the soulmate marriage model has not stood up well in the face of sustained social scientific inquiry, especially when one considers the welfare of children. You see, broken families produce what he calls the higher risk of dysfunction and disturbance that follow many of the former into adulthood. It changes children, and they carry that on. Paul Amato at Penn State, a sociologist, he says the divorce revolution's collective consequences for children are striking. He estimates that if we just controlled for just divorce rates, this would happen. The nation would have 750,000 fewer children repeating grades, 1.2 million fewer school suspensions, and approximately 500,000 fewer acts of teenage delinquency, about 600,000 fewer kids receiving therapy, and approximately 70,000 fewer suicide attempts every year. Blink-182, they say, you gave it all away. It was mine. So when you're dead and gone, will you remember this night 20 years now lost, it's not right. They're not known for their moral philosophy, but they voiced a whole lot of pain for a generation of young people who had to deal with their parents' liberation. Yeah, 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 stay together for the kids. But what about happiness? What about a, a husband and a wife? What about a man and a woman's right to happiness? According to new research from the University of Chicago just this month, quote, the best predictor of happiness in America, marriage. Nothing currently predicts happiness in life better than a good marriage. Being married is the most important differentiator with a 30-point happy to unhappy gap over the unmarried. So the message of the sexual revolution doesn't match the reality of the sexual liberation that they're experiencing. 
the message about Christianity being oppressive is mistaken. And so the popular story in which Christianity puts an end to freedom isn't the case. Instead, contrary to the conventional depiction, the sexual revolution has proved a disaster for many, and its weight has fallen heaviest on the smallest and weakest shoulders in society. So I think in many ways it's time for another revolution. Not a return to the 1950s, but somehow we, we need a revolution that resonates, that can speak to those four quadrants, those four views. I don't know if you know this, but it just so happens that Christianity was introduced into a world that dealt with those four precise views of sex. In, in the Roman world, where Jesus' ethics burst onto the scene, the Roman view of sex in many ways mirrors the American view of sex today. You could look at the, the philosophers like Plato or the Stoics, and, and they're saying, no, just be in control of your desires. We don't need to be having sex. And so the, the philosophers are walking around in robes trying to not have sex. Meanwhile, there's a very casual view of sex at the same time with what scholars call Roman debauchery, where you can just go into brothels and you can have any kind of sexual encounter basically that money can buy, and it's just acceptable. It's normal, it's good. It's just like another day at the office for a lot of these people. So it's not just casual, but it's also, we could say it's, it's traditional. Um, in the Roman world, maybe even more than ours, they still maintained a traditional view of family as well alongside these other views. In fact, in the Roman world, you were required, in many cases, if, especially if you were an adult man, to be married. If you got divorced or if your spouse died, you were legally obligated within two Your neighbor could sue you for half of your estate if you didn't get married because you had to look out for the good of society. You had a, a duty to your family and to other people around you. But most of all, I think we see this romantic view. You see kind of the blend of this in the story of Mark Antony and Cleopatra. You remember, remember the story, not Elizabeth Taylor... Uh, pretending to be Mark Antony. There's an Oscar-winning film called Cleopatra that tells this story. But uh, the, the kind of heirs of Julius Caesar, Julius Caesar's emperor of Rome, and his heirs are competing for the throne, and they're not getting along. There's Mark Antony and Octavian, and they're, they're just rivals. They're both vying for the throne. They want to lead. And so to smooth things over, they have an arranged marriage between Mark Antony and Octavian's sister, Octavia, very creative name. And so they think this marriage is going to smooth it over. <laughs> but this doesn't stop Mark Antony from having this passionate love affair down south as he meets Cleopatra, the queen of Egypt. And in their passion, a civil war actually breaks out and the Battle of Actium, some of you are like, I know some of what you're talking about, some of you, I've never heard any of this before. Let me skip some of the history. <laughs> what ends up happening is that because of their romance, the, the whole empire ends up in civil war. It ends like this. Octavian defeats Mark Antony and Cleopatra and their forces, and so they retreat back to Egypt. Mark Antony thinks that Cleopatra has died in the war, and so he falls on his own sword. His people come in and they say, oh, she's still alive. And so he's here bleeding out, and so they carry his body over to Cleopatra, and he dies in her arms. And then a couple of days later, she commits suicide because if she can't be with the one she loves. You see, all four views are there. 
you see the austerity of the philosophers. You see kind of the debauchery of the common people. You see the traditional vein, and you see the romantic view. And it's all, the Romans invented the romantic view, but they were more rooting it in the gods than the self. So what would it look like for the teachings of Jesus to break into a culture like that? That's what I want to explore. I want to look at what the teachings of Jesus are and then what was their effect on a culture. Because if that was their effect on the culture, then what might their effect be on the culture now? What could a sexual revolution based on the teachings of Jesus lead to? Where can we find true wisdom about sex and marriage? I think in order to find true wisdom about sex and marriage, you have to go back to the designer and it's Jesus. Now, last week I talked about how ironic it is that we're going to Jesus to talk, talk about sex, given that he never had sex. And so the reason we're going to Jesus is because he is, he is the true, he's God come in the flesh. He's the true, he's the designer of sex. He, he understands and can speak to our situation in ways far better than we can. So I think Jesus has some transcendent wisdom for us in this really complicated issue that hits all of us. And today, we get to dive into Jesus' most extensive teaching on sex. It's in Matthew chapter 19. If you have a coffeehouse Bible, it's page 845. Matthew 19, Jesus is asked about one of the most common distortions in his day of marriage. And instead, Jesus responds with his definition of marriage. We see four essential pieces to Jesus' definition of marriage. Let's dive into this text. Matthew 19 in verse 1, it says, when Jesus had finished these, saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Now, this may seem like a small thing, but the last time Jesus left Galilee and went to the other side, there was a very important event that happened in his life. It was the death of his cousin, John the Baptist. And if you remember the story of why John the Baptist died, it was because John the Baptist spoke out about marriage and divorce. It was because of his view on marriage that he was killed. And so it's not surprising that we'll see Jesus tested in the same vein. It says large crowds followed him and he healed them there. This is a really cool Greek word, this language of healing. But actually we don't see healing stories in Matthew 19. We see teaching stories. Healing stories and teaching stories though actually I think are meant to go together. This word is... Uh, literally, Bruner says, he therapied them. When his teachings come out, they are therapeutic acts that heal people. This is the healing that he offers the people, but some test him. The Pharisees, Bruner calls them the serious. So the serious came to test him. Why are they testing Jesus on marriage? Because they know that marriage now has, your views on marriage can kill you. If you're a controversial religious figure, all we have to do is get you on record about marriage, and then the people in charge will take care of it. So they test Jesus. They asked, is it lawful or is it biblical for a man to divorce his wife? Now, you may think that in a traditional culture like Judaism, that there wouldn't have been very common marriage. You would be wrong. Marriage, I mean, divorce was extremely common in the first century world. It Basically, all you had to do in the Roman world is just move out. And you had to say, we're done. That's divorce in the ancient world. It's really easy to enter into marriage and to get out. It doesn't have all the, the legal pieces. And so Judaism is actually trying to correct that by saying, you need a certificate. 
So is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? This language of any and every reason is a really, really popular debate during that day. And there's two positions. There's a conservative position and there's a liberal position. It's based on this text from Deuteronomy 24. It's, is it lawful to divorce? This is the go-to text at the time. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, he gives it to her and he sends her from his... So the debate is on this word, something. And the, the liberal, the progressive view at the time said, if you can find something, then you can divorce her. Literally, rabbis are saying, if she burned the toast, divorce her. If you find someone more attractive, divorce her. If she's really annoying, you can divorce her. If you can find something, you can divorce her. And this is the most common view of that day. It's what we would call today no-fault divorce, except it's even easier. But there's a conservative view that says, no, it's not something, it's something indecent. And so they interpret this not as if you can just find something wrong, it's that if you can find a sexual something wrong, sexual infidelity. And so they're asking Jesus a very specific question in a hotly debated debate that's ongoing at the time. Are you with Rabbi Hillel or are you with Rabbi Shammai? Are you with John the Baptist who just got executed for this or are you with us? And Jesus isn't interested in the distortions of marriage. He's interested in the definition of marriage. And so Jesus answers like this, haven't you read? You want to know if this is biblical. He says, haven't you read? That at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. This is a quotation from Genesis 1.27. About man and woman being made in the image and likeness of God. Haven't you read Genesis 1? When Jesus talks about marriage, he goes back to the beginning. In fact, he uses that phrase in just a second. He says, it was not so at the beginning. For Jesus, what happens at the beginning is definitional. And he says, he made them male and female. And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to the wife. It's interesting that when Jesus quotes this text, he doesn't use the verse right before. This is Genesis 2.24. For this reason, a man shall leave. He doesn't use verse 23. He goes all the way back a chapter, and he brings gender into it. He brings sexuality. And the reason seems to be, this is according to Preston Sprinkle, a New Testament scholar who's devoted most of his life to answering questions around um, sexuality. He says this verse, for this reason, a man shall leave his father. He says it's like the John 3.16 of marriage verses. It's often quoted in the New Testament and by the rabbis when writers are looking for a quick statement about marriage. And Jesus, he keeps the connecting phrase for this reason, but instead of linking it to the verse before 23, he connects marriage back to 127. The, the creator made them male and female. He says this is an even more explicit statement about sex difference. For this reason, what reason? Sex difference. Marriage, according to Jesus, is precisely the coming together of two sexually different persons. There's a major debate today. It's not even a debate anymore, post-2015, around gay marriage and homosexuality and heterosexuality and there, massive conversation that's still happening in the church, but Jesus, 
He says, before we look at any distortions, you have to look at the definition of marriage. And the definition of marriage is a man and a woman. Sprinkle once more. He says, I really don't think it's much of a stretch to say that Jesus cites the portion of Genesis 127 that highlights sexual difference because Jesus wants to highlight sexual difference. So the first piece of Jesus's view on marriage is that there's a sexual complementarity. Sexual complementarity. Not that you compliment each other and say, you look nice today. Oh, that might be important for marriage. That's not what he's saying. It says, in the beginning, he made them male and female, that the man, it is not good for him to be alone. And so I need to make a helper, someone who can do for you what you cannot do for yourself. That's what that word means. I need to make a helper who's suitable for him. That, that language of suitable, it's this who stands in opposition to him. Not in a combative way, she's a helper, not combative, but in a complementary way. She stands in a way where two halves end up longing for each other. So this language of suitable helper is someone opposite who can do what only he can do if he is going to be fruitful and multiply. Adam doesn't just need another human, he needed a woman. And so the definition that Jesus gives is to go all the way back to one and two of Genesis, and he says... Sexual complementarity, these two need to be fit together. He keeps going. Haven't you read? He says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is Genesis 2.24 again. Now, this phrase is so striking in Genesis. It's like, what is this doing here? We're talking about Adam and Eve, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, they become one flesh. That makes sense. But why is it saying, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife? Adam and Eve don't even have a father and mother in the narrative. How did, how did this show up? It's because, again, when you go back to the beginning, it's not just descriptive, it's prescriptive. What happens there is meant to be carried forward. Jesus is carrying it forward. But what he carries forward here is of leaving of his father and mother. It's not only striking because Adam and Eve don't have parents in the narrative. It's also striking because in that culture, a man actually normally didn't leave his father and mother. The woman did. This was an extremely countercultural view of marriage. But what it's saying is that there's this relational priority that happens here. Bruner, he says this in his commentary, that biblical creation teaches the precedence of marriage over all other human relations for men and for women. He was reminding men, because it's countercultural for them, that she is most important to you now. Walton, he says, the flesh line is even stronger than the bloodline. When two people become one flesh, this new family takes priority even over the old family. And so to leave and be united means to transfer one's fundamental allegiance from parents to spouse. Did I hear an amen? Somebody's got in-laws issues. Okay. <laughs> no. A man will leave his father and mother, and they'll be joined together. And so the first dimension we saw was sexual complementarity. The second dimension, when Jesus is defining this, he says, this is the relational priority. It's more important than every other relationship and friendship. And the biblical marriages don't always bear this out, but it's not because of God's design. God's design is that this is the relational priority. Jesus says, a man shall love his spouse as Christ loved the church. The depth of the priority of love is immense in the biblical narrative. 
third piece we see here in this phrase, united to his wife. United is, it's a lot of words. In the King James, you remember, he's supposed to leave and cleave. Cleave? It's be glued to. It's, uh, I'm thinking of Zach Chaplin here. It's uh, R.T. France. He says it's attached to. A, an, an attachment. But the language of joined is actually covenant language. In Deuteronomy, whenever somebody makes a covenant with God, or in Proverbs, whenever somebody makes a covenant with somebody else, it uses this word of joined. This is covenant language. It's that you're, you're making a strong commitment covenant. That's, that's why when, when we get married, we say vows. And the vows don't just describe how I feel today. Oh, I love you so much. No, the vows are there for when you don't feel the love for them, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, till death parts us. It is a promise that forms a commitment of durability. But you see that this word united is passive. It's not something you do. It's something that happens to you. Because this covenant is first and foremost a vertical covenant that you make with God. That's why in a wedding ceremony, there's two sets of covenant. One, you make to God and to the audience. And then you turn and look at one another and say, will you? So there's a promise made to God, but then there's also a promise made horizontally to another person. And in the context of this covenant of joining, it says, then here's how the joining happens. It happens the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but they're united in one flesh. One flesh is the idea of a new family. But it, it's about the physical union of a sexual encounter. Physical union, Bruner says, brings metaphysical communion. Sexual intercourse delivers a spiritual interconnection so deep that it should only be entered where there are the strong undergirding foundations of spiritual faith and biblical marriage. Hooking up, then, is profoundly disintegrating. You see, marriage is a permanent, public, exclusive, legal commitment before a man and a woman to share all of life together. Which means, if you're having sex outside of marriage, it's not only fragmenting, personally and neurologically, but it's also fraud. The, the point here that I'm trying to draw is on this covenantal intimacy, that sexual intimacy is the covenant initiation act. It is the covenant renewal act. It's like renewing your lease or signing the dotted line on the contract. Sex is the expression of the covenant. And so when you have sex outside of covenant, you're promising everything with your body that isn't there in your life. It's defragmenting but John Tyson, he calls it sexual fraud. <laughs> you're making promises that you're not keeping. You're giving away things that you're really not giving away. The intimacy physically isn't matching the intimacy financially or in terms of security in every other way. So when Jesus talks about physical intimacy, the one flesh act, he locates it only in a united, committed, covenantal relationship. The third dimension of Jesus' definition of marriage is covenantal intimacy, that that form of intimacy only belongs in the covenant. Fourth one. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. These three verses are the most extensive teaching on marriage anywhere in the Bible. It's all right here. The fourth piece 
if God has joined it together, let no one separate. I'm calling this lifelong permanency. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus says, well, first of all, Moses didn't command it. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. Your hearts were hard. They're trying to blame the wives. Is it something or is it something indecent? And he's like, no, it's you guys. It's your hardness of heart. But it was not this way from the beginning. Jesus is more interested in, in the prescriptive, the, the definitional piece here. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So anyone who divorces and remarries, he says, you're, you're in adultery. Marriage is meant to be lifelong. Death is meant to be the only thing that parts us, Romans 7 verse 2. He says, but there's at least one exception. Do you see it here? Except for sexual immorality. So in the, the current debate at the time, Jesus is very much taking the conservative position, maybe even a hyper-conservative position. And so he's saying that there is this exception. Now, would Jesus allow for other exceptions? What are all the exceptions? Those are really important questions and conversations. Let me just say today that when it comes to these views of marriage, that the New Testament has a few different voices here. Matthew gives the exception of sexual immorality when Jesus says it. Mark and Luke, they actually have no exceptions. There's no except for sexual, it's just straight, always stay married. Paul seems to suggest that the abandonment of, an, uh, of a believer by an unbeliever, uh, sometimes this is called the Pauline privilege, he says you're no longer in bondage in such cases, which seems to be giving permission for remarriage. But not only does the New Testament have many voices, the church has had many voices. There's the traditional Catholic position, which says no remarriage for anybody, which is why you would need to get an annulment rather than a divorce, so you can technically not have been married. There's the Orthodox and pro Protestant positions, which Calvin, he says, there are no exceptions except sexual immorality. Or Luther, who said there are actually many exceptions, but only sexual, sexual immorality and desertion are grounds for remarriage. Now, if, if you're in the thick of this, this isn't the place to go here. Um, I would love to just talk through what you're feeling, what has happened, and uh, to seek the Lord's wisdom with you. That can't be the focus of everything I'm doing today, though. So instead, I want to just get back to really not the distortion, again, not, but the definition. And Jesus says there's the fourth piece here of lifelong permanency, that the covenant is actually designed for life, for life, for all of life until death parts us. Jesus has already answered the divorce question without ever directly addressing it. And what Jesus basically says is you can't, you can't divide one without making a fraction. Um, Calvin, he puts it like this, the one who divorces his wife tears from himself half of himself. And so the disciples, they hear this definition of marriage. The marriage is about sexual complementarity between a man and a woman. It's about relational priority that the spouse becomes the primary family unit. It's about covenantal intimacy that sex really only belongs here and anything else is sexual fraud. And then it's for lifelong permanency. And they are thinking probably what you're thinking. They're like, this is a lot. They say this, look, the disciples said to him, if this is the situation, I like how they don't even trust Jesus fully. 
now that we know this is the situation, they're like, now, if this is right, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it's better not to marry. Now, I, I get that feeling. The high standards of Jesus when it comes to marriage, he's not bashful about them. He risked his neck for this view. And so <laughs> I can have a little more confidence in risking whatever it takes to, to preach about it here. I, th I think Jesus' view is the wisdom that we need for marriage and sex today. His view is incredibly countercultural, and it's incredibly difficult, so much so that his disciples were like, is this really for us? I want to talk about that next week. Next week is singleness, and we'll pick up this passage right there. So I'll put a pin in it for now. Let me just draw a few implications together, try to make some applications. What I think Jesus presents is a sexual countercultural it's a sexual counterculture when it came to the Roman world, just like when it would come to ours today. Post-sexual revolution, this is incredibly countercultural. The first piece of the counterculture is that sex, the sexual complementarity piece, that sex difference is definitional, not incidental. This isn't about gender roles. It's not about who does the dishes or who mows the yard, or it's not, it's not about those pieces of who stays at home it's about a sexual difference, not just a gender expression difference. So I'm not saying get lost in the 1950s and go back there and everyone is going to be happy. Um, instead, I'm just saying to Jesus, this is definitional, not incidental. Second piece is the relational priority. In our vows, we normally say forsaking all others. This is the, the common wedding vow, which means my spouse is more important than every other relationship that I will encounter. Tim Keller in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, which is my favorite book on marriage, if you're thinking about marriage, if you're happy in marriage, or if you're struggling in marriage, that's everybody. <laughs> if you're single, he's got a chapter there too. This is an excellent book for you. The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller. He says, your marriage must be more important to you than anything else. No other human being should get more of your love, energy, industry, and commitment than your spouse. God asked that a man leave his father and mother, as powerful as that relationship may have been, to forge a new union that must be even more important and more powerful in his life. The way that relational priority shows up is to make the time to be with your spouse. Now, this is me preaching to myself. Husbands, wives, the, the level of, this isn't a phrase, but like take it for grantedness that can happen in a marriage over the years when you get kids and a job and life just gets full, it doesn't do justice to the vows that we have made. The, the spouse, we have promised a relational priority and part of the relational priority isn't just to forsake all others, it's actually to invest in them. So can I just remind myself and you to make some time for your spouse and for treating them in dignity and honor and value and just kind of re-celebrating what it's like to get to know each other again. Third, covenantal intimacy. I want to talk to singles and marrieds here. Singles, I want to challenge you to not sleep together before you're married. And I want to challenge you to not live together before you're married. Now, this idea that sex and abstinence, <laughs> sex outside of marriage, uh, Keller, he says, it seems so unrealistic as to be ludicrous. 
Yet despite this incredulity, this has been the unquestioned uniform teaching of not only one, but all of the Christian churches, Orthodox, Catholic, and Protestant. This is not like a crazy thing Smith came up with. This is just Christianity. Jesus' standard is sex in marriage, period. So, when you go to sex outside of marriage, it has a very disorienting effect. What it does is that it begins to feel like a marriage. But that other person, Keller says, has no legal, social, or moral responsibility even to call you back in the morning. This incongruity leads to jealousy and hurt feelings and obsessiveness. It makes breaking up vastly harder than it should be. And it leads many people to stay trapped in relationships that are not good because of a feeling of somehow connected themselves to someone else. So the deeper problem, he says, that over a lifetime with many sexual partners is that sex will lose its covenant-making power. Even if one day you do get married, ironically then, sex outside of marriage eventually works backwards, making you less able to commit and trust another person. So don't, don't go to sex outside of marriage. If you are, today can be the day that you have a hard conversation with your dating partner and you can make some new boundaries to get to a place where you can still be infatuated and in love, the love like no one has ever felt before. You can still have that and not go down that road. You can decide together. And if even you don't decide together, you can decide for yourself that this is a line that you need to draw. When couples move in together, Jonathan Grant, he says in his book, Divine Sex, he calls it the definitely maybe approach. And in, in some cases, it makes intuitive sense. You need to try it out. You wait and see. You, you, you go to Sam's and you eat the sample before you try the thing. But he says, in reality, this is more like a, he says, if intimate relationships were mortgages, we might call these subprime commitments. They're high-risk projects with little or no collateral security. Unfortunately, just like subprime mortgages, these relationships are designed to fail. What's most startling about the trend of living together outside of marriage is that it's becoming increasingly popular, even though the research shows overwhelmingly that cohabitating ultimately undermines relationships. You say, well, I'm trying to see if this is a relationship. Only one in five living together end up in marriage. And you say, well, yeah, it has an 80% success rate. No, that's actually not what happens. Even those in cases where those living together do end up married, cohabiting significantly increases the likelihood of an eventual divorce. People who cohabitate more than once have radically higher rates of divorce, Grant says, in their subsequent marriages. Women who cohabit multiple times before marrying divorce more than twice as frequently as those who live only with their future husband. It, it's a myth. It doesn't do the thing you're, you think it does. It undermines the trust and security factor there. Now, singles, we'll talk more next week. Marrieds, when it comes to covenantal intimacy, can I just encourage you to have more sex? You're like, no amens? Come on. Th that's it. <laughs> Number four. That is not a passive-aggressive way of talking to Kelsey, by the way. <laughs> Number four, lifelong permanency. I think you should stay together for you and the kids. 
I have no idea what time it is. Um, okay. Yes. Okay. Let me skip some stuff. I'll save that. Um, if you're considering divorce, sl slow down. Um, let's talk. Uh, maybe pull in your group leaders and some wise counsel. Um, in, in some cases, Jesus says this, this actually, it's like an amputation. You, you cut off the arm to save the, the body. It can be really painful, and it sometimes is necessary. Sometimes the covenant is so broken. But, but more so, Jesus is saying, I am for marriage, and I am for marriage for life. And so if possible, Jesus is actually given a counterculture view of marriage that he says, it, you see, in the, in the Jewish world, you were legally obligated, in, in some cases, to divorce your adulterous spouse. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not the case anymore. You can forgive, even in cases of infidelity. Jesus' ethic isn't just of high standards, it's also of high mercy. And so it's possible that over time, even in a very difficult thing, even in the case of unfaithfulness sexually, it's possible that you can still, you can still maintain the marriage. And, and if you're not all the way down there, just know, just set as the ambition that we are here for life no matter what. You've made the promise, and so renew the vow. Not literally, sex is the covenant renewal ceremony after all. It's a pledging your life, but lifelong permanency. We celebrate the durability of hard marriages. And just know that you will go through years of your marriage where it's extremely difficult. Your marriage may begin in years that are extremely difficult. But the best years are still out in the future. I'll talk more about that next week, apparently, because I'm, I don't want to go there. Okay, so l let, me, let me wrap it up. Um, as Kelsey said. Um, so what happened when these four teachings introduced themselves into the Roman world of the first century? It was an incredibly counterculture of sex, a, a sexual counterculture. The, the classic scholar Kyle Harper at the University of Oklahoma, he calls this the first sexual revolution. He says, we think of America as like, we finally found out that consent was important. He's like, do you know who invented consent? Christians. In the Roman world, it was all about class and it was about power. And Christians came on the scene and they said, no, everyone is cosmically accountable for every sexual act. And you may be scared of accountability and you think, that's not good. Who's watching me? But I'll tell you, in a culture where powerful men can do whatever they want to, whoever they want, as long as they're beneath them, cosmic accountability brings some justice to the scene. Christianity introduced cosmic accountability, and it introduced consent. It introduced the agency of all people. The first people to pass laws protecting vulnerable people, like women and slaves and the poor, was a Christian emperor in the 400s. Kyle Harper, he says, there can be no doubt that the motivation was Christian. It is Christianity that broke in and said, your sexual choices matter. How you treat other people matter. They have agency. They have dignity for all people, no matter what their class is. And in fact, it's not just consent. It's what Keller calls super consent. He, it resisted this transactional view of marriage, like accumulating wives and accumulating dowries and transaction, treating women like they're commodities. And instead, Christianity started treating women as covenant partners. So what happened in, in this culture 
He says, once the revolution started, there was no stopping it. Millions, especially of poor and vulnerable women, came to Christianity because here they found, yes, the ethics are more restrictive, but they were so attractive. This, this is what I want a man who will love me, not a man who will commodify me and trade me out and fool around with other people and act like it doesn't matter to me. I want a man who will love me, where I can have intimacy and security. In, in Christianity, they weren't only protecting the vulnerable women, they were also protecting vulnerable children. And so it began to grow because there was this counterculture where they stayed together for the kids, where children could grow up with a dad in the home. And that seemed to make a difference in this culture. The, the sexual counterculture of Christianity turned the Roman world upside down in remarkable ways, beautiful ways, ways that I think our culture still needs today. What would happen if we did this? What if we became a church where if a woman found somebody to marry here, she wasn't getting erotic text messages before they even went on a date. Instead, she was treated with somebody who was opening the door and treating her with dignity, somebody who would make promises in real life, in public, to God before he made promises with his body to back it up. That's the kind of marriages we want for our single people. And we want marriages that stay together, that are lasting, that are lifelong, where we are here for one another, not pretending that it's always easy. It's not. In fact, it may never be easy. It's, it's marriage. It's, it's Christ-centered, cruciform love. But also, we want to be a counterculture where our kids can be raised in environments where we know that they are loved and they have mom and dad around for, for the whole. I, I think this is what we, even if this isn't what we've done, this is what we want. And when we don't live up to this calling, it's because we are not living up to the standard of Jesus, not because it's somehow good. May, may we repent and fall down and say, Lord, we are sexual broken sinners. Have mercy on us. So what can God do with our sexual brokenness? I want to, oh no, Kels, I was going to get you up here to do something. All right, let me go quick. Hey, this is in your bulletin. Sign up for Freedom Prayer. Where's the table? Jermaine's back at the table. We all wave at Jermaine. There's going to be a couple of people back here to talk to you about Freedom Prayer. They can answer questions and they'll sign you up for a prayer time. This is for singles, this is for marriage, this is for whatever your issue might be. It's a really wonderful way to encounter God. Second, unwanted group for men. 12 men, 12 weeks. It's almost half full, so sign up now if, if you want a spot in this. And if you don't have time on Wednesday nights, just buy the book. Find a partner. Go through it on your own. Unwanted isn't just for men who are deep into pornography and can't find a way out. This is basically for anybody who has a sexually broken story. And if I did a show of hands on who has a sexually broken story, that includes all of us. So let me lower the bar for married men because what I thought would happen is that a lot of our single guys would sign up and a lot of our married guys would be like, I don't want to have that conversation with my wife. I'll just muscle through it. I'll figure this out. I'm going to have to do this on my own because it's, I don't want to go there if I don't have to. So let me lower the bar a little bit. If you have struggled with this in the past, this may be a really good thing for you. This may be part of what prevents you from relapsing. So 
if, if this is something, maybe even talk to a friend and just say, hey, will you do this with me? And then you can even be part of an ally for somebody who's there. If you need to be there, find a way to get there, okay? Sign up. Sign up soon. Um, Kelsey and I, we counsel a lot of people who are married who come to us and they say, I knew this was a problem in the past and it turns out it's still a problem. What do we do now? Is our marriage done? And if that's you, we've talked to a lot of people who are right there with you. And the commitment of marriage and, and the mercy in Christ can be powerful enough to overcome even this, to find transformation and healing, to rebuild trust over time. Our advocacy for wives is to become your husband's teammate in his spiritual sanctification. Not, not the voice of shame as best you can, but a, a voice for his transformation. And so this may be part of his transformation. So wives, if you know your husband struggled with this in the past, can you just give him permission to sign up? Um, lower the bar. All right. Can I, can I ask this question? We'll close here. What can God do in our sexual brokenness? Some of you are just feeling really guilty today, and you're feeling ashamed, and you're feeling weighted down by all that I've said. And uh, may the Lord use that to convict, but may the Lord comfort your heart, because that is not his posture to you. Maggie started our service today by saying that when she encounters God, he is a father who's holding her hand and walking her, and he is not scolding her or condemning her. You know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what can Jesus do with our sexual brokenness? There's this text at the beginning of Matthew that uses the word by. It's the genealogy. It's the underappreciated marriage text of the Gospel of Matthew. And it's just, Jesus came from this guy, and 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 the word by shows up four times. And every time, the genealogy of Jesus, which is meant to show your sanctity and your purity and your ethnic heritage, every time that the word by shows up, it's like <laughs> Jesus was born by Tamar, the harlot. And he was born by Rahab, the prostitute. And he was born by Ruth. And he was born by Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. You see, the Christian story is written in a way that shows that redemption comes through sexual brokenness. The redemption of all of us comes through people who you may not give a second look to on the street. May God help us. But these women and these men in their sexual brokenness were used by God and their stories of sexual brokenness were redeemed for the Son of God to come into them. And I think in your story of sexual brokenness, the Son of God can come in and redeem it too. If he can re redeem the stories of Tamar and Rahab, of Ruth and Bathsheba, of assault, of infidelity, of prostitution, of promiscuity, then he can redeem your story too. No matter what it includes, the Son of God can redeem a story of sexual brokenness. All right, let me just end there. Would you stand? And I want to pray a blessing for you.
God, our Father, would you comfort our hearts? Would you convict our hearts in, in your wisdom? I don't want any seeds to be blown away. But I'm asking, Lord, that you would implant and begin to root in a new direction for the sexual brokenness that some of us are experiencing. Would you protect our children and the homes that they're growing up in, that they may experience uh, the covenant permanency that you design? Will you protect our marriages, guard us from the evil one and the temptation that is there? Would you protect the sexual holiness of our singles if they strive to live in integrity before you and before the people they're dating and their friends? Lord, would you give us a vulnerability in our community that is met with trust and love and grace that reflects the grace of Jesus who said, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. Lord Jesus, help us in all of this. It's in your name we pray, amen.